I'm a talkative person because I'm an SE dom. It's like my only world is the physical. My words are the only means of me getting out my meaning and intention. We'll see if I eat those words. She'll be entertaining others all the time. This is exactly where I wanted to go with it. <laughs> Do not dare to this bump on a podcast with people can hear me. You guys ready to go? Yeah, keep Hello and welcome back to the Literally No Subjects with Dear Kristen podcast. Today we are doing Dear Kristen episode three. On these episodes, I answer questions submitted by you guys to my submission box on my website page. That is hellodearkristen.com forward slash contact. So if you'd like to ask me a question, please head over to that website and ask away. Last episode, I got through four questions in, I think, 45 minutes. Today, I'm going to endeavor to get through five. Can we do it? Let's find out. Jumping straight in, our first question is from Erica. My husband and I enjoy your videos about the MBTI immensely. We are both interested in self-discovery slash recovery, and the MBTI is where we meet from our respective research and development. However, and I am sure this isn't the first time you have heard this or you wouldn't make videos about the MBTI tests being inaccurate, we are both stuck in determining our types. As for myself, brackets, ISFJ, according to the personalityhacker.com website, which most MBTI-related websites recommends close brackets i can't always relate to the isfj you present in your skits and i'm definitely lost in understanding the cognitive functions as for my husband he identifies with both istb and istj though i believe he is an istj with a knack for fixing things which brings me to my question could you please recommend a reliable resource for understanding the cognitive functions and hence discovering our mbti personalities my husband is more educated than me, and as such, he understands the technical jargon more than me. English being my second language, I'd appreciate a resource with less of the big words and more of easier, understandable definitions. I appreciate your help with this, and thank you in advance for your advice. Keep up the fun, Erica. Thank you so much for the question and for the compliments, Erica. I kind of answered this in the fourth question of my last Dear Kristen episode, Typing yourself is a hard one. It's always really good to seek the console of people who are close to you. I think our biases get in the way of us understanding our type objectively, especially because Myers-Briggs is more than behavior, much more than behavior. Remember that Myers-Briggs is about how you're perceiving and judging the world. So you're, you're wanting to look at someone when they're unaware that they're being tested so look at how they live their daily lives. If you're a P, you are going to be so much more open-minded and spontaneous in how you live. Especially if you're an ISTP versus an ISTJ, you are naturally going to be more comfortable in chaos in your physical world. And you're only going to sort of pay attention to physical data when it's relevant to whatever outcome or interest you have in the moment, whatever outcome or interest your TI takes, your TI takes in the moment. So have a look at your husband. Is he operating in a more outcomes-based way? Does he like order in his physical world fundamentally or is he more comfortable in the chaos? Generally speaking, peas have a more relaxed demeanor because they are so process focused. It's about the here and the now, how they're interacting and engaging with the world in the here and the now, rather than constantly engaging in the physical world with certain outcomes of how the physical world should be experienced. That's a fundamental difference between SE and SI, which is what you'd want to be looking at when typing yourself and your husband. An ISTP will also feel way less inclined to project their understanding of how 
the physical world should be presented onto other people because they're not using TE, they're using TI. So there's a huge difference there in how those two types are going to come across in the first place. If you want more nuance on this, I definitely recommend checking out the very first Dear Kristen episode that I did where I answered the question, how do I type people in the wild? I go into much more detail about being able to differentiate the cognitive functions in that episode. So Erica, I recommend checking that out. I also would, if you are that insistent as well on understanding your type, I recommend maybe diving into some online typing by a professional. And also keep in mind that although the Myers-Briggs personality tool is really good for understanding yourself and your weaknesses, it is not the be-all and end-all and we are very capable of becoming good and functioning human beings without it. So if it helps you, great. If not, don't lose too much sleep over it. I definitely empathize with you though. I personally find introverts way harder to type than extroverts because the number one reaction that's happening is introverted and happening in their internal world whether rather than the external world. And as an ESFP, I'm typing people based on the physical data that they're presenting. So extroverts are much easier for me to type than introverts. But yeah, I've talked about this in the last two Dear Kristen episodes. So feel free to listen to those episodes if you are interested. I will also quickly mention because Erica mentioned in her question, I can't always relate to your ISFJ impressions in your videos. Please keep in mind, just generally everyone, that the videos that I present on my channel are very based on stereotypes. It's the only way that I can create fun comedy because if I was presenting super nuanced types who had all worked on self-development and virtue, they would look kind of similar in a lot of ways in what I can present in like five seconds. Though I guess it would be a challenging video to present 16 personalities at their epitome of virtue, <laughs> but that would imply that I know what every type looks at its epitome of virtue, which would be way too definitive for a title. But yeah, my presentations are very based on stereotypes and we do have to rely on the stereotypes a little bit to create quippy, witty comedy that is quick and retains the attention of audience members. I do like to go into the nuance in more of my interaction style videos, but most of the time, yeah. I don't present a nuanced understanding of each of the types, which is why I'm trying to release content such as how to make INFJs feel loved and the type trend polls and answering these questions where I can go in a bit more in depth into the Myers-Briggs theory and personality and how it's helped me, etc. But especially with my ISFJ portrayals, my goodness, I feel like they are very shallow and it's probably because I do not understand what it's like to use those functions. I mean, S-I-F-E. They are just so far from functions that I use, which is, I think, why a lot of my ISFJ portrayals are really, like, you could even argue that they're lazy. I really do go with a stereotype there in a lot of them. Of course, as a Myers-Briggs creator, I recognize I have a responsibility to portray people with more nuance and, like, be careful of what I portray of people and the different types. And I do take that seriously and I'm really trying to grow in my understanding of people of each of the types. At the same time, I run a comedy channel, so the stereotypes do help when it comes to comedy because people tend to laugh at things that are more outrageous and over the top, which is why the caricatures do really work. So when you're trying to understand your type, don't use those comedy sketches to really work out what type you are because, again, the comedy sketches are also super behavioural-based. They don't touch on the essence of each of the types. So I'll just say that. Moving on to the next question. This one's from Missia or Messiah. 
Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for asking. I have a question about leading with FE after listening to your podcast, Unpacking the ENFJ Personality, featuring your friend Laith. Mainly, I was wondering if you think it could be possible to not realize that I'm an FE dom. I resonated very deeply with Leith's answers and descriptions of being an ENFJ. I do most of the things he mentioned unconsciously, brackets, getting social cues, trying to always navigate social situations as seamlessly as possible to make everyone feel satisfied, automatically giving affirmations and acting as basically a therapist to help others understand their emotional processes better, close brackets. Except I also shy away from people when I have low energy levels because I know I won't be able to satisfy their needs with my batteries empty. And since I've been running on my batteries empty for a longer period of time, I figured I can't actually be that person that I was anymore. And I was confused and looking for what my dominant function could be and found no clear matches. In result, becoming frustrated because I felt like I changed and my type wasn't supposed to be changing based on what I know. Now, though, I really get this at home feeling that people who first receive their result from the 16 personality site do. Yeah. So it would help me a lot if I could have a second opinion from you. Thank you for reading this and I apologize for grammar errors and for taking so much of your time. Have a great night slash day. Bye. Please don't apologize for grammar errors or for taking so much of my time. I love giving my time to answer these questions and I also make a lot of grammatical errors myself. I really get a lot of life from answering these questions for you guys because you guys are the reason I have the success that I do on my channel and I also like to talk about self-development a lot. So this is my absolute pleasure. If you are using the fact that you shy away from people when you have low energy levels and so you feel like you can't be the same person that you need that you were before purely as the reason why you think you don't run with FE, I wouldn't necessarily write off the fact that you're an ENFJ. The fact that you're even valuing being that same person for other people and therefore you need to recluse because you feel like on drain batteries you can't be that person for people in itself indicates that you might be using FE because it's showing that what you're valuing here is being that person for other people. If you didn't use FE at all, you wouldn't care that you weren't presenting that way for people. If you were, say, like an INTJ or an ISTJ who has blind spot FE, your reason for being away from people and isolating would not be attached to people whatsoever. It would be based on yourself and getting things done in your life. The very fact that you feel like your batteries are drained and therefore you need to recluse from people because you can't be everything for them implies that you are valuing being everything for people. That's obviously a very simplified version of the nuanced experience that I expect you're going through, but I wouldn't necessarily think that that means you're not an ENFJ. I think, again... A common misconception as a result of this kind of modernized understanding of introvert extrovert being that it's just based on where you get your energy from people or not people. I think because of that common misunderstanding of extrovert introvert, well, not misunderstanding, like it does have its own value. Like it has become a bit of jargon that actually means something in the modern world now, introvert extrovert to pertain to that actual meaning. But as it applies to Myers-Briggs, that is not what introvert extrovert means. That is not what the E or I, the beginning of your name the beginning of your letters means. You can absolutely isolate for days at a time and still be an extroverted type. You've got to look at your motivations for isolating and what it was that caused your batteries to be drained. And let me tell you, as an ENFJ, obviously you are probably the go-to for a lot of people when it comes to emotional issues. You said so yourself, you're very much fitting into this therapist role for a lot of your friends 
with an ENFJ who runs with FE and having that personalized judging function, TI being their last function, they can sometimes feel like they've lost, they don't really have a clear sense of self without other people. And so I found that they might need to take an elongated amount of time by themselves to kind of establish some sort of footing again in themselves and who they are. Because if you think about it, you're out being everything to everyone and constantly using your social batteries, which you probably love in some respect. But being everything to everyone and hearing so many different people come to you with their emotional issues, ways of life, like maybe ways of life that contradict that of other people who are coming to you, your sense of what you believe and who you are might get quite rattled. And so you might need to really just like all or nothing recluse, as I mentioned in previous Dear Kristen episodes on the podcast, that um, inferior function can present in a five-year-old way. So very unnuanced and in like a tantrumy way. So when that inferior function presents, it's very all or nothing. It's like all the other functions disappear in that moment. So needing to take a break from people because your batteries are drained might just be because that's your bottom function being like, yo, can you just cut off everyone for a second and just take some time for yourself so you can get some kind of footing on what's real and who you are again, because you've been so involved in other people for a while. That's just a theory. And it's kind of something that I've seen play out in the ENFJ people that I know in my life. I know for a fact, Laith definitely needs to take those moments. He goes days for a time sort of like isolating from people to kind of get his footing again, though he, that's not to say he will turn down someone if they need him in those moments. As he mentioned in the podcast, there are people he will absolutely be there for whenever they need, even in those moments where he's isolating. But yeah, again, look at what you're valuing in the decisions you make. Remember, it's not about how much you isolate or how much you don't in in deciding whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. It's about what you're valuing in that moment. And you have mentioned that you choose to isolate because you can't be who you are. Let me get the exact wording just to be clear. I also shy away from people when I have low energy levels because I know I won't be able to satisfy their needs with my batteries empty. That's how you phrased it. So again, what you're valuing in that moment is satisfying other people's needs. If you didn't use FE, that's not something that you would use as the predominant decipherer that's not a word, of why you are reclusing. I, for instance, as an FI user, when I recluse, it doesn't have immediately to do with satisfying people's needs. It's more about satisfying my own needs. I'm like, okay, I'm unhappy. I feel like I've lost myself. I feel like I need time to do what I want, think what I want, act how I want, and just be free to frolic without people around me. It's more self-focused than others-focused. Of course, as a Christian and someone who values loving others and being virtuous and all that, like I do care about being there for others and I do need, I do know that I need to have the alone times that I can be there for others. But my main decision to, like my decision to recluse when I do is not first and foremost based on other people. And that's how we decipher the cognitive functions. It's like looking at our main first reaction that hits, our first motivation that hits, our first thing that we value when we're making our decisions. And yours seems to be how you're presenting to others or how you're able to help others, which still points to Effie, to me personally. That, those are just my thoughts. Thank you so much for your question, Masia. Moving on to the next one. This one is from Marja. I was wondering lately how mental illnesses slash disorders affect someone's personality type. My partner has ADHD and I keep mulling over which type he could be, but cannot seem to settle on one type that seems most likely. Admittedly, I generally find it hard to type people and myself at times as I struggle to perceive their cognitive functions individually, but always see them as a possible combination of their functions and experiences interacting with each other, which we all are, generally speaking. 
So that also doesn't make it easier. What are your thoughts slash opinions on this? With warmest regards from Europe and indecisive ISFJ. P.S. I'm a big fan of your videos and podcasts. So you definitely have ISFJ listeners. I just don't have Instagram to participate in the surveys. Haha. <laughs> no worries at all. I completely understand. First of all, thank you so much for your question submission. Now, this one is a bit of a challenging one. I really do hesitate to comment on the whole mental illnesses slash disorders thing. I am far from qualified to talk about something that sensitive and nuanced and complex. I think it's important to remember that Myers-Briggs is a great tool, but it only takes us so far and it does not explain all of the microscopic nuances about personality. It just can't. I don't think any personality tool can explain something as complex as personality when you think about all the factors that contribute to how someone's behaving. Myers-Briggs is fundamentally a really good tool for understanding how people perceive and judge the world in a way that's different from you. And the thing that I find it the most helpful with is communication with others and the ability to accept and love others. It is really good for that. But there are so many things that Myers-Briggs does not account for. I think mental illnesses and disorders is not something that should necessarily be part of the Myers-Briggs conversation insofar as determining type based on how mental illnesses and disorders present. We just don't have enough research for that and it's just something that's so complex. That's not to say I haven't wondered about this question before. I certainly have and I've come up with theories that I have enjoyed playing with sometimes, but I don't think that there is enough research for me to comment on it and I haven't found any notable trends or thoughts that are worth verbalizing, being aware that, you know, possibly thousands of people could listen to this podcast episode. So I just want to really stress that Myers-Briggs is a great tool for understanding how people operate in a way that's different from us, but people are so much more than their Myers-Briggs personality type and mental illnesses and disorders that present in someone are for reasons aside from type most of the time. So it's best to look into things like psychotherapy and books that or research papers that actual psychotherapists and psychoanalysts have written. I think looking into such material can help us love others in their whatever mental illnesses or disorders they might have or might be presenting in them, which ultimately is the goal. When using tools like Myers-Briggs or other personality tools, the goal should be to love others better and ourselves better. It should be for self-development, not as excuse for behavior. So diving into material that's going to help you understand the complexity of mental disorders and illnesses and how to love people in that is going to help you in your relationship. Myers-Briggs isn't necessarily going to help you with that. As far as deciphering your type, which is the second part of your question, I talked about this at length in my first Dear Kristen episode called Typing People in the Wild, How to Type People in the Wild, and as well in my second episode where I talked a little bit about how to work out your type. I don't want to repeat all that information too much, but I will briefly say that when deciphering your type, it's really good to have a really nuanced understanding of the functions, which you can get through researching the functions, but also taking a number of the different tests out there and just sort of paying attention to what your tendencies seem to be in your answers, whether they skew towards more emotional or rational responses, whether you're more impulsive, go with the flow or outcomes-based, all of those categories. I really recommend sitting with someone who knows you well and asking them how they see you and how they would define your personality just to sort of get rid of those subconscious biases that we have towards the person that we'd like to be. I think confirmation bias is something that's 
a problem when you self-test and then also using professional typing services. So get someone who knows what they're talking about to chat with you and work out what your type is. That's always a good idea because type professionals have sat for hours and hours and hours interviewing people of different types and so they've seen what it's like to have people of different types present in different ways. And most importantly, be open to learning things about yourself that you didn't know. I think one of the complexities about deciding your type is that as long as we're aware we're being tested, there are going to be subconscious biases at play. Like I'm going to act differently if I'm alone at home in comparison to when I know I'm being tested. That's something that's part of being human. I can't switch that off. So having a chat, having an interview with someone who's a professional typologist who knows like what to look out for is a good idea. And chatting to other people who know you really well is also a good idea. So I'm really sorry, Marja, that I couldn't provide any solidified answers to you there, but I would recommend jumping back and having listened to those episodes where I go into a bit more about those, to- well, about the second topic again. I will hesitate to comment more on the mental illnesses and disorders because that's something that I think is far too complex for what Myers-Briggs is setting out to do. Question four from Ahab. I selfishly as an ENTP would like an analysis episode on a relationship between an ENTP and an INFP in all its pros and cons, communication style and interaction, etc. I found plenty, but they're most just displaying a comparison rather than them in a relationship dynamic. And I appreciate your input because it's very informative and relatable in its TI accuracy, Lameo. Also, I figured no one's done a comprehensive relationship compatibility between types in such an in-depth way before. Even articles and sites are limited. So you could very well find yourself being the top provider for that form of information and it's extra content for your channel as well. See, I'm thinking of what's in your best interest already. (laughs) Thank you so much, Ahab. I really appreciate it. Look, I did say that I was going to answer your questions, no matter how specific they are on here. Well, insofar as they relate to type or self-development or psychology. So I will endeavor to provide a brief analysis on the ENTP-INFP relationship. Important disclaimer, people are more than their types. So I can offer some ideas about what communication barriers you might come across or what might work between you based on cognitive functions, but I cannot claim to understand the nuances of your particular relationship if you're in an ENTP, INFP relationship. That being said, I can speculate about what barriers you will face in terms of interaction, which I think would probably be the case in any ENTP, INFP relationship, though it would present in different ways depending on the maturity of the person, habits of the person, nurture of the person, etc., age of the person, all those factors. Pros and cons is what you asked first. So pros is that I think that sharing NE would be really good for both parties. I think INFPs, every single INFP I know is a really good listener and they like to relate their own experiences to whatever is being spoken to them because they like to be able to relate and connect deeper with the person they're speaking to. So that for them involves finding a mutual point of connection in what they've been through because their FI journey is obviously the most important and real thing to them. So I think an ENTP would love this because not only would they feel like they are being listened to in all their ideas, but they would have new ideas being thrown back at them when the INFP contributes their own experience. And I think the fact that INFPs tend to be deeply introspective and contemplative would be great for an ENTP because they would be able to present new ways of thinking about things that maybe the ENTP with their blind spot FI 
would not have considered. I have an ENTP brother and he has communicated to me that INFPs are refreshing for him in that he feels like he can talk for hours with them. And it's not like they get drained from being in the NE realm and they are very good at listening, which he loves as an ENTP who just likes to throw ideas out and have them bounced back in some kind of way. And I think the fact that INFPs can contribute to the conversation is really great for ENTPs, generally speaking, of course. In terms of the cons, the biggest obstacle that an ENTP and INFP relationship is going to face is the fact that the cognitive function that the INFP is using most of the time, which is FI, introverted feeling, is the ENTP's blind spot. So ENTPs don't use their personalized subjective emotional experience to make their judgments. First of all, they're using a logical framework, but they're not even citing their own emotional biases like at all. They're not using the emotions that they feel as a decider for anything. They're thinking about what makes logical sense and what is in line with their own set of rules and protocols that they have deciphered and established to be true and therefore reliable most of the time. Conversely, INFPs do that with their emotions. So they've they've deciphered a set of emotional values and personalized emotional experiences that are very real to them and reliable most of the time. So if we think about maybe an immature INFP, and what I mean by that is someone who's younger, hasn't really done a lot of introspection or like has less life experience or relationship experience, which we're all guilty of. Like we're all guilty of being the immature version of our type at some point. They would be using emotional language a lot of the time to chat about their experiences. So things that they like, dislike, things that resonated and didn't, what they believe and think is going to be decided based on emotional bias which can be quite frustrating for an ENTP so you would have first of all a lot of misunderstandings about that and second of all the ENTP is probably going to get a bit frustrated if again we're speaking about a maybe a younger ENTP frustrated at the lack of rational language that an INFP is using the INFP is probably going to be speaking a lot in relationship terms because F's generally speaking are emotional and relationship focused So that might frustrate an ENTP when they want rational frameworks for making their decisions. So the difference in how they communicate and the language that they use is pretty big. And I think that blind spot FI for the ENTP could make it really hard because they don't value FI, they don't use FI, and they can't understand FI. But INFPs not only use it, but it's such a sensitive function that unless the INFP is mature enough to communicate exactly what they're feeling, exactly their triggers, exactly what the ENTP needs to be doing to love them well, and is mature enough to have emotional regulation, you could find a situation happening where an ENTP is just talking and accidentally says something that's going to affect or offend an INFP and then the INFP will get emotional and respond or lash out in a certain way that doesn't make sense to the ENTP and then they could say something that's invalidating or too harsh and then the INFP feels invalidated and hurt by that and maybe doesn't voice it because, you know, INFPs are so introverted and so very sensitive that they... Probably a lot of INFPs can be quite conflict averse and so maybe they won't bring it up and so they stew on it and then but the ENTP doesn't know and so yeah you could have resentment building up walking on eggshells these kinds of things can happen in those kinds of relationships where communication isn't something that's been developed and worked on specifically to the nuances of that couple and each of the individuals in that couple. 
And I do think because of the blind spot FI versus the dominant FI, and also the fact that the INFP is using emotions foremost and the ENTP is really not using them at all, like their own emotions, I mean, the INFP will feel it more acutely. And so those kinds of misunderstandings are more likely in this relationship than in others. I mean, ENTPs have the stereotype of being quite insensitive, quite blunt. I mean, they are throwing ideas out there and making sure that others generally have rationally thought through their ideas. So it's not uncommon for ENTPs to challenge people's ideas and what they think. And so from an ENTP's perspective, an emotion of an INFP might not make a lot of sense to them. And so they might say, yeah, but can't you see this other thing? And the INFP might be like, the other thing isn't relevant. What's relevant is my emotional experience and I want you to validate it. But the ENTP might be like, that doesn't make sense. You need to consider all these other things. And then, yeah, just a whole bunch of like, there's a lot of potential for the INFP feeling invalidated in their emotions and the ENF, the ENTP feeling misunderstood in how they communicate and frustrated in the fact that they can't seem to communicate well with the INFP or, you know, just the natural results of one of those parties having a dominant function that is the other's blind spot. If, however, both individuals have worked on self-development and being mature and looking inwards and working out how to love others in a more holistic kind of way, you would have something wonderful, which is that the INFP would put less responsibility and expectation on the ENTP to fulfill their emotional needs because they understand who the person is in their essence and that it's unfair for them to put those expectations on them because of how fundamentally different the two are. Whether you're acknowledging it's an F or T difference or just being like, yo, I'm emotional, they are not. And so in the INFP Working out their own self-regulation techniques for their emotions could be journaling or going to someone else who's maybe an F friend who can help them process the emotions. They would naturally put less pressure on the ENTP to fill that role, which I think is fair in love. You know, we should be able to let the other person be who they are and elevate them in that. So... What might happen if the INFP is healthy in that way is the ENTP who would also, you know, if they are more um, mature and devoted to the relationship in a self-sacrificial way, they would be like, all right, I need to work on being more emotionally validating. Even if I don't understand the emotion, I need to find language that's going to make this person feel valid in their emotional experience. And that's something I'm devoted to doing. And then in turn, the INFP can extend grace to the ENTP and not come to them as much to fill that role. And then the ENTP feels love that they're not doing that. And then you're both healthy individuals who are existing, loving each other very much, but also existing very separately as separate individuals with a whole complex different upbringing and nurture and all that which we are in relationships and I think as I said in previous podcasts like expectations can kind of get in the way of relationships uh, flourishing so yeah just kind of breaking down down those expectations is really good uh, a lot of the time that's what I found in relationships as F's in general I'm speaking from an F perspective personally as feelers we it's generally going to be better for us to stop putting expectations of the T's in our life to fulfill the emotionally validating role. That's not the tool that they're using most of the time. And just in the same way that we can't help that our first response to most things is an emotional one, they can't help that their first response to a lot of things is not an emotional one. So it's very hard for thinkers to understand that about us. And so we really need to extend grace to them in that and find our own ways of coping with our emotions because it's not the responsibility of others to control or regulate or satisfy our emotions. It's on us to find a way to 
well, we have to be responsible for our emotions at the end of the day and how we let them impact others. Your third part of the question was communication styles. I think I've kind of touched on that. And without going into too many specifics, I think what I've touched on is probably kind of the main sort of issues you'd have with INFP, ENTP relationships. I've seen a lot of them work. So I think, again, I've said this before, my life motto used to not be this, but as of late, it is not trying to find the perfect partner, but trying to make myself the perfect partner. And if we think about that and we we approach life with that mentality of constantly working on ourselves rather than expecting someone else to be perfect, we will generally be happier. It's not the responsibility of your romantic partner, no matter how close you are, to regulate your emotions and be there to catch all of your emotions. It's nice for them too, but we need to be able to exist as functional, healthy members in society with them also having their complete autonomy and independence and elevating them in who they are. Even if they're completely like, even if we perceive them as being completely unemotional or whatever. Okay, that is all that I will say on that question. Moving on to question five. How exciting. This officially means that I will have touched on more questions than in previous episodes. This question is from your local friendly ESFJ, Winky Face. Hey, hope you don't mind me being anonymous. Of course I don't. I was wondering what you think about when type is formed. Like at what age is personality type determined at birth? Does birth order have anything to do with it? Can it change in early childhood? Do the parents' types have anything to do with it? Thank you so much for your question, friendly ESFJ. I talked about this a little bit last time in my most recent Dear Kristen episode where someone asked a question about how childhood affects Myers-Briggs type. I do believe that Myers-Briggs cannot be changed and I do think that it's probably implanted in us from a very early age. I personally have been able to see cognitive function tendencies in children as early as three years old. I talk about this and the birth order topic, does birth order affect Myers-Briggs type, in one of my other podcast episodes, which is really fascinating. That episode is titled Talking MBTI with a psychology professor featuring Dr. Ben Cotterell. He has written an entire research paper on Myers-Briggs and birth order and what you can tell about someone's personality type based on birth order. And we also talked about defining cognitive function tendencies in young children at that point. So I highly recommend you listen to that episode. It's really fascinating, especially from the perspective of a psychology professor. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I don't generally believe that type can change, but I do believe that your behavior and habits can change based on your upbringing and what your parents have instilled in you. The habits, the um, etiquette, the manners, traditions, tendencies, values, those kinds of things that can be ingrained into us from childhood, but how we respond to them and decipher the value from those things is very much based very much based on our cognitive functions. For instance, in my family, all four of us were raised going to church every Sunday, which was great. And as a result, I found it easy to go to church every Sunday, it became a habit. But it was only later in life when the faith made its way into my heart on a whole different level, which is something that I needed to do separately in order to place value on the faith using my second function introverted feeling. And that's a whole journey which involved me kind of leaving the faith and coming back. So things like that. But definitely listen to the previous episode if you're interested in a more nuanced answer to this question. I do also think that parents' types have a lot to do with certain behaviors and habits and all those things I mentioned, but not necessarily to do with our type. 
because, yeah, our behaviours and habits can change. And as me as an ESFP who was raised by my particular parents who were both EJs, I will look much more, I guess, well-mannered, put together, like self-disciplined in certain ways because of the habits that my parents ingrained in me and the attitudes that they plugged as being valuable to me growing up. Compared to another ESFP who might have had two EP parents, they might be more free, like openly free-spirited, go with the flow. But both of us will have to learn different things about our young selves and maybe certain things we need to grow out of in order to live our most authentic, fulfilled life, etc., etc., which I kind of go into in the episode as well. But I don't think parents' types will inherently change your actual personality type because your personality type, as Myers-Briggs stipulates, is like completely taking place within yourself. It's your cognitive functions. It's what's the mental steps that are happening before you even make choices and before you even behave in particular ways. So definitely take a listen to that episode if you're interested. And thank you to the five people who submitted questions for this episode. If you're interested in submitting questions, please go to my website, www.hellodearkristen.com forward slash contact in order to submit your own question. I generally will read them all out at some point, except some of them that are very obviously troll questions, which I do enjoy reading, but I don't bring them to the podcast unless they're particularly funny. So definitely jump online if you're interested in that. Otherwise, if you liked this episode, please share it with a friend and consider following the podcast. And if you're on a podcast platform that allows ratings, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a rating. Now, if you're interested in checking out more MBTI content, such as my comedy sketches based on the 16 personalities, please head over to my YouTube channel, Dear Kristen, share them around if you enjoy them, or check out my Instagram page at dear.kristen. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N. If you'd like to see some of my favorite comments from YouTube, and if you want to participate in my type trend polls, you can also now check out the raw answers from each of my type trend polls in PDF documents that I've uploaded to my website at hellodearkristen.com forward slash type trends. Thanks again for listening, guys, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye.